Welcome to the Curling for Change podcast. My name is Will Robertson, and I will be your host for this limited series. Brought to you by Curling Canada and sponsored by the World Curling Federation. Without further ado, let's get right into today's discussion. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Curling for Change podcast. My name is Will Robertson, and thank you for taking the time to join us for today's conversation uh, on what we can do to change the face of curling going forward. Um, I'm here with some amazing people who do a lot of work in the space, uh, but also who have a lot of expertise to share with you. And I'm going to try and do my best to make sure that uh, we get their messages, their lessons, but also their experiences out for all of you uh, to hear and to learn from, and hopefully to share with others. Uh, If you do enjoy the conversation, please do uh, like it or share it uh, in audio or video format. Uh, And thank you again for, uh, for joining us. So Without uh, further ado, I'll hand it off to some introductions of our guests today. Um, we have Andrew Paris, we have Catherine Henderson, we have Richard Norman and Rosa Gonzalez, and then I would ask Andrew to kick us off with uh, with an introduction. Sure. Thanks for having me, Will. Um, so my name is Andrew Paris. My pronouns are he and him. Um, by day, I am the coach and lead for equity, diversity, inclusion, and mentorship with the Canadian Sport Institute Atlantic. And during my spare time, I'm not only a curler, um, I've been curling for 25-ish years, but I also am the founder of the Black Rock Initiative. And our mission is to create opportunities for BIPOC youth to experience the sport of curling while also working with curling clubs and facilities to provide them with tools and resources so that they can be a welcoming and inclusive facility to your entire community. But really happy to be here today and thanks for having me as part of the conversation. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Roselle. Thanks, Will, really appreciate it. My name is Roselle Gonsalves, uh, she, her pronouns in use. Uh, I'm joining you today from Amaskwachi Waskahigan, which is located on Treaty 6 territory, now known as the city of Edmonton. Uh, Thank you for having me here today. I'll follow in Andrew's footsteps to describe my day and later that day, um, you know, uh, profile. By day, I lead uh, inclusion and reconciliation strategies at a financial institution in Alberta. And uh, by later that day, I'm also very honored to serve as a governor on the Board of Governors of Curling Canada. Thank you. Uh, Richard. Uh, Thanks, Will. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Um, My name is Richard Norman, uh, pronouns he, him. And yeah, what is my day like? That's that's always a little complicated. Um, I'm a researcher. Um, I have sort of um, an academic lean as well. Um, I'm currently the director of Community Futures and innovation at Curling Canada. I also serve as a director on United We Curl and uh, his mission is all around um, opening up spaces and transforming the world through curling. And uh, yeah, my focus is really slanted more on the experiences of racialized folks in sport, but also in spaces in society and how do we actually make experiences better, um, more equitable, and, you know, overall, the true inclusive uh, spaces that they need to be. Thank you, and uh, welcome, uh, Catherine, go ahead. Hi, everyone, I'm Catherine Henderson, uh, she, her, 
And I am currently, during the day, I am the CEO of Curling Canada. And I will say um, in the nights and the weekends and things, I'm a curler at the East York Curling Club. Um, but I also, I serve a number of areas of sport um, uh, through board work uh, and through volunteer work. Um, and also at a university level, um, I'm on a university board, sport and health. And those things to me are all very, very important. I'm also the mother of two, um, uh, I, I wouldn't say at this point, high performance athletes, they're retired, but uh, I have seen them through um, some, some high performing elite careers um, in a different sport as well. So I'm certainly familiar with the sports system as a, as a parent, as a participant, um, and as a, as a sport administrator. Well, thank you. And, and thank you all for, for joining us and bringing your, your perspectives and your backgrounds and, and expertise to this conversation. I really appreciate it. And I, I hope our listeners will as well. So diving right into our questions today. Um, my first question is asking about what do you think the biggest challenges for diversity, equity, inclusion and work related to that in curling specifically, um, but also perhaps more broadly, should, should we wish to, to touch on that as well? Um, Roselle, would you like to start? Thanks, Will. That's a, that's a thick question, and I don't know that we necessarily have all of the time that we need uh, in order to be able to fully dive into you know, what we see as the need for, for inclusion in the space of curling. I'll try and touch maybe on some, on, on some key points. Um, I think one of the uh, perhaps biggest ways in which we see the need for inclusion in the system of curling and perhaps one of the um, barriers that we might experience to creating that inclusion is truly how enormous the system of curling in Canada is. Um, and how complex that enormity is as well. So when we think about the system as it exists, not just at the national or federal level, but also then into our provincial and territorial spaces, and then all the way down to our curling club spaces, there are complex and nuanced um, ways in which these spaces intersect with each other. So there's often a, a real challenge to mapping how that system works within itself and then you layer on the complexity of inclusion and creating welcoming spaces and evolving the sport and the system for the next generation it's it's moving an entirely complex machine um, kind of in tandem and in, in sync uh, into its next evolution and so that takes a lot of work it takes a lot of nuance it takes a lot of being willing to sit in complexity that isn't always comfortable or fast moving uh, I also believe that one of the um, ways in which we create some, you know, change within the system and inclusion within the system is also being open to understanding our system from the outside in, which is why I think, you know, the work that so many of our, our folks on this call are doing, as well as, you know, the conversation that we're having on today's podcast really starts to open up our perspective to an external one. So outside looking in, which is often hard to experience when you're part of the system. Uh, it's difficult to see your own nose without a reflective surface. And so I'd say those are some of the high level ways in which there are opportunities for us within the curling system to make inclusion part of that conversation. Thank you. Some, some really important points that speak to the, the weight, but also the significance of systems change in the sporting context, which is very different to perhaps systems change in other, other areas of our life and, and, and business as well. So, um, Andrew, 
Would, uh, would you like to share with us what you think the biggest challenges facing DEI and curling are? Yeah, it's similar to the results point. It's really a complex question, if you will. However, to narrow it down a little bit, um, I, I think the biggest challenge is the complexity um, combined with time. So um, what I mean by that is we have to remember to create um, meaningful change. It's a movement and not a moment, meaning that this is going to take quite a bit of time to be able to get to a space where we know matter-of-factly, if you will, um, that growing is, is truly inclusive for all. And we know, at, especially at the community level, with a lot of our current facilities from coast to coast to coast, the average board member is only on there for about a three-year period, if not less. So to create, um, oppor to create opportunities to really go through this process, it's really looking at this from a long-term perspective and getting started with the work. But it's also complex in the sense that in my time in the sport, I've had conversations with many Crown Club managers who believe that they know the answer. They know the one thing that it takes to make the sport more inclusive. When in reality, it's so much more complex than that. We know that not all Black people are the same. We know that not all Indigenous people are the same and so on and so forth. Therefore, the barriers that just people of color alone face are very different than perhaps barriers from those in the 2SLGBTQ plus community and so on and so forth. So it's really recognizing this is a movement and not a moment and really taking the time to understand how bit by bit we're going to go about dismantling some of those barriers that have that our sport that we love has historically faced. Yeah, and a really important point there about, you know, working on diversity, equity, inclusion within curling, but also welcoming the marginalized and diverse communities into the sport requires work and support specific to their context and to their needs, and not just a universal, we're going to do X, and suddenly everyone will come, and everybody's needs will be addressed. Um, you know, that's a, a really important point that some folks may miss sometimes. Um, Richard, um, would you like to add to this? Well, uh, yeah, the, from my perspective, I think um, I sort of come at it from a little bit of a different angle. I, I really don't think that DEI is well understood um, in sport in general. And so when we think about these are massive terms in and of themselves that happen to be now grouped together in a way that probably is not serving, you know, sport overall. So, I mean, I'll start there. So that becomes really complicated even when you're looking down at curling um, because the organization of how curling is really provided across the country and even in the rest of the world is so different. And that nuance actually creates, as Andrew was talking about the complexity and you know why it's hard to actually make change that could be comprehensive, but also very specific at the same time. Um, and I also think that, you know, when we're talking about the biggest challenge facing curling, it is, it is really facing society in general. And, and so we have to think of sport as being a great driver of change, um, a great microcosm of how to understand the dynamics of what is happening in the rest of the world. 
but also that we can't just change sport. We actually have to ripple this out and actually change sentiments of people who are involved because that's what sport is. It's all a bunch of individuals coming together that create culture, that create these, um, these expressions of what's valuable, what does tradition mean, all these kinds of things. So um, it is a massive undertaking. At the same time, there is so much hope for real positive things that can actually be brought, not just you know from the sport context, um, but also bring sport uh, from uh, sorry from bringing outside in society into sport. And I think that to me is is what the role should be now is is really focusing on what amazing things are going on outside in the world and how do we actually cascade them into sport and into curling so that it will create these different environments for people to operate in and, and actually fully express who they are. So yeah, big, big question. <laughs> Thanks for asking that. Yeah. And a big question as well of, you know, sport as community and having to deal with, you know, issues of diversity and inclusion within the community of, of curling in, in particular and, and those specific contexts, but also, sport within community of how important our curling clubs are to our various communities across the country. And as you mentioned, quite rightly, bringing that to a, it is a, a fight against society writ large and moving that change, um, you know, in, in curling clubs and sport has an opportunity to move that forward, um, but also can be, you know, harmed and regression in the community around them as well, if that, if that occurs. And we've seen some of that more recently in particular, but um, it's a difficult period and also a complex one for, for us to, to address. But thank you, thank you for, for speaking to that. Um, and, and dealing with all of this has been a, all of that complexity and all of this difficulty has been a priority of Curling Canada during your tenure, Catherine. And um, what would you say is the biggest challenge facing Curling Canada and the sport uh, with DEI? Sure. Well, I'll start off by saying, you know, your fear always is going first, but now my fear is going to be going last because I think you all covered off some incredibly important points that, that I might have made in my own particular notes. You know, I, I really do want to go back to some, some of the things you said and maybe just speak about it, you know, really as, as a sport administrator. Um, you know, I think it's a really good point that curling does exist in a larger sports system and it also exists in society. And, um, you know, when we're having these sort of conversations, we can't limit it just to curling. Curling needs to serve the movement, not the, you know, and, and vice versa. Curling needs to be able to have those conversations with the movement, but it would be hugely surprising to me if curling can solve all of the, the ills that we've been talking about. And um, But what, what curling needs to be is a willing participant and a willing listener and a willing partner in all of this with the curling system, then with the official sports system, but then with the greater sports system, because, you know, there's, there's lots of things that happen in school gyms and rec centers and things that we don't even know about. And so try to get our arms around them. I think the other thing that is, there's, there's sort of two things that I think um, when, when we're trying to organize ourselves as a, as a sport body is finding common language and common definitions of what exactly it is that we mean. Um, so that when we, when we are putting together initiatives and we are you know, working with our communities, we're, we are taking the time before we dive in to do things is to really understand what is it that you mean and what is it that you're looking for. 
And I think sometimes because we immerse ourselves in curling and it's day in, day out, that's what we think about. And everyone here um, talks about not just, you know, working in curling, but also, you know, playing is that, that, that curling is not going to address the needs, the sport. It's the organization of the sport. Um, and I think um, that, that, you know, there's some people that are going to enter into the sport that just aren't going to like it. They don't like ice. They don't like brooms. They don't like rocks. They don't like Friday night, you know, and, and that's okay too. We're, we haven't failed if people, you know, dabble in our sport. I'm, I'm always ready to grab them as a fan. You know, if they say they want to try and they, they don't like, like, how about, how about being a fan? How about being a volunteer? How about being sort of part of, part of our larger community? But I think all of those things are, are things that, that we need to help. And I would also say just when you're a large body and many of you are involved in these things, it's quite public, is as you're trying to make those efforts and as you're trying to move things forward, um, the fact that they don't happen immediately or people don't really understand all the things that we're trying to do often, you, you can maybe spend a little bit too much time um, you know, trying to tease out, you know, what are we doing wrong rather than really focusing on what are we really doing right and keep doing more of it. Those would be my thoughts. Absolutely. And an interesting point there speaking to if you, you know, it's important that we work on and including and welcoming all, all folks to our communities and to our curling club. But if you're not able to welcome someone directly into competing or playing the sport itself, you haven't failed. You can still include them in volunteerism, in being a fan and welcome them in that space in a different way that doesn't necessarily come beyond the ice every Tuesday night kind of thing. Um, it's an interesting point I haven't quite heard yet. So, so thank you for that. Um, so we, we transition over to now, what does curling have to do to be more inclusive and welcoming to, to everyone and, and particularly to marginalized communities and diverse populations in, in our country and our communities? Um, I would ask uh, Andrew if you wanted to start with this one. Sure. So um, I believe the biggest thing that we can do, especially at the beginning, is to have conversation. It doesn't need to be this big, grandiose, um, huge program or marketing plan right off the bat. It's really about having conversation with groups and individuals that we historically have not seen um, within our current facilities. And I, I'm not just speaking about um, race or, or gender either. I'm talking about your average person who perhaps know that curling exists because they've seen perhaps the briar or the skies, but they don't know that there's a curling facility within their community. Have a conversation with them in terms of what could what could you do to um, bring them into the curling club for them to um, potentially try the sport and to enjoy the sport? With the Black Rock Initiative and the programs that we've created, one of the first questions that we asked very early on in the conversation is what does curling look like to your community? Because we very much as curlers and those who curl for a long time, we get often trapped in this box of curling has to look like this. It has to always be the two draws in the evening, eight ends and so on and so forth. But I've always asked the question, so long as Johnny or Susan or Peter is not hurting themselves or somebody else, what difference does it make if the sport, well, if the product on the ice, excuse me, looks a little bit different than anything else you've ever offered before? 
because the reality is, and I'm not saying that we need to completely change everything where we're starting to change the distance between the houses and now we're going to throw nine rocks instead of eight rocks. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the product, the game itself, not getting so much on the ice, but what we offer off the ice. What will it take to create that sense of belonging to all those who walk into a curling facility truly feel like they can be their authentic selves versus get what I like to call the confused dog look when they walk into a curling facility. So it's what the biggest thing that we can do to start is asking that question of what does curling look like to you and to your community and build from there. Yeah, and I, I kind of find interesting there as well of thinking of our curling clubs as as a center to some degree of like, what events are you having in your space? What supports are in your space? What else is going on in your curling space? Is that an opportunity for you to perhaps welcome other, other members of your community into your curling club? Um, you know, as you said, Andrew, <clears throat> what does the product look like? You know, will you work to perhaps include singles play or triples play, or are you playing six ends? Um, you know, do your leagues need to be strictly gendered? Um, you know, some of these other questions of, of what that looks like to, to bring other communities into our sport, but also into the club and the facility itself. Um, Roselle, did you want to pick up from there? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I think, you know, Andrew offers such a, such a um, robust and, and possibly quite specific way of, you know, taking on some of these uh, action items to, to enable a more inclusive um, and welcoming space within the curling system. I'd like to maybe echo something that that Rich said earlier in our conversation, which is that, you know, when we think about the language of DEI, we've lumped them all into this um, one acronym assumption that we all think of as, as being part of the um, vernacular. And we all assume that we're all playing from the same dictionary and we know what this means and how it how it unfurls. And I think perhaps if we were to maybe forget about the DEI acronym for a quick second, and I know that that's blasphemous for a person that practices inclusion for, as my bailiwick, um, forget about the DNI acronym for a second, but move towards what is it that curling would like to be? Who is it that curling would like to be for its own community internally, but as a, an exemplar within the broader landscape of sport, within the broader landscape of what it means to be Canadian, within the broader landscape of what it means to be a Canadian sport organization on a, on a global stage. There's so many ways in which we can understand who and what curling would like to be. And in order to achieve some of those outcomes, inclusion, diversity, equity, create lenses of opportunities that we might uh, enable in order to get us there. Uh, oftentimes when we think about diversity, we think about, as Andrew mentioned, these fairly tokenistic ways of understanding um, who and what is part of that conversation. We often, you know, zero in on equity seeking or marginalized communities in order to um, understand this work as something that is for them, quote unquote them. And there's always on the other side of the them coin and us. And that creates a bit of a, of a divisive us versus them, you versus me, insider versus outsider. And I think that kind of lingual 
um, artifact creates a perception that curling has these, these spaces that are inside versus outside, whether it's within the entirety of the curling system, so internally, or outside of that curling system. And if you're outside of that curling system, then you don't belong to it, or you don't know about it, or any of those things. So what I anticipate as the most salient way in which curling um, you know, harnesses the power of inclusion, particularly, because diversity is just a fact. It exists both within the curling system and within the spaces that the curling system has not yet accessed. Um, but where I see inclusion being a really, really powerful driver for the evolution and change of the sport and of the, the you know, the sports organization as a system um, is that we have to understand where we want to go to, what our opportunities are, and then build programmatic or tangible ways of addressing that end goal with inclusion in mind. I love Andrew's suggestion about, you know, connecting directly with community. That connection is going to look very different if you are, say, for example, in the Northwest Territories and your uh, population is looking like folks who are a couple weeks in the mines and then a couple weeks with their families. It's going to look very different in, if you are on PEI versus if you're on Vancouver Island, very different demographics of people, flow of humans, uh, access to resources and clubs, those kinds of things. And I'd say what I what curling as a system has to do with inclusion is twofold and it's bi-directional. One is internal to the system itself. What it has to do with inclusion internally is the opportunity to create more space within our system for folks that have not always been included within that, whether it's because of rules, whether it's because of our structure, whether it's because of a lack of relationship building, whatever that might be. So that's internal to the curling system. But I also see curling in Canada as having the opportunity to externally be a, a bit of a torchbearer to our global partners and to our global sports families to say, this is how we could be exemplars within the, the, the field of sport and utilize inclusion to springboard the power of sport to galvanize community, to galvanize um, good relations, to galvanize um, the opportunity to course correct what historically and you know, more contemporarily we have seen as inequitable um, and uninclusive spaces, both within the sports system and, and outside of it. Some, some really interesting points there, uh, very well made. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to think of, of curling clubs, of course, from across the country in different spaces and how that interacts with um, what diversity, equity, inclusion is, but also, as you mentioned, quite, quite rightly picking apart the acronym itself, which is something I find really interesting and kind of digging into of what, what does this mean? Um, you know, uh, equity and inclusion and, and diversity and lumping them together in, in that kind of conversation may change the way you think about it when really there are separate goals to each of those elements and separate ideas and notions and way of approaching each of those elements that don't necessarily flow together. But I really like the point you made about um, othering in a, in a way, right? Of if we create the idea of a, an established curling community and who is in the curling community, and yes, there's traditional understandings of who has participated in curling and who hasn't, but if we stick to that line of thinking, that binary of who's inside and who's outside, that 
that may hinder our ability to actually welcome folks we're trying to have in, in our community in various ways um, by thinking of them as someone else, as an other, as them. Um, and so I really appreciated that, that point. Um, Catherine, and, and, and the work that you know, you've done with Curling Canada and, and your perspective building from that, you know, what do you think that the sport of curling has to do in, in that way uh, to become more inclusive? Sure. Well, you know, I'm going to separate the sport of curling from Curling Canada. I mean, we're, sure. we're a national sport organization. And again, it, it is important, you know, just, just to realize we, we are, we want to be the, those sort of torchbearers. We want to be that, that, that inspiration. We want to be able to sort of demonstrate some of those lived values within our own organization, but really our, our job at this point is to work with the system um, both as it is to do as much as we can, but I think also externally, I would say Curling Canada um, as, as an organization can help the sport the most by working to advocate for changes in the sport system. So um, given our size and our complexity and you know our, our commercial success and our visibility, we really think that that is a huge part of what we can do is to work within the system of sport rather than um, rather right within the curling system to make some some serious changes to how people access sport and how they experience it and um, what gets rewarded in sport. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's a big part of what Curling Canada can do for the sport of curling, but also in, in sort of the lens of the sport for all. Um, there's just a ton of other things that we can do. So I think a lot of it has been covered, um, you know, and, and I know that we have a limited amount of time. So I will stop there to say, I think that's a, that's a big role that we can play uh, amongst many other roles that have been covered. Absolutely, and thank you. And, and Rich, what, what would you have to, to add to this as well? Uh, I'll say yes, going last is, is not the preferred position in this group. Um, I think it's a really interesting question. I'm like, what does curling have to do? Because I, it, there is this assumption that curling is unique, that is really different than other sports and how they want to approach the ideas around, you know, inclusion. We'll stay, we'll start there. One of the biggest issues is that every sport thinks it's super precious that everybody should come and play this sport. And if we get everybody to come, we're going to, you know, be thriving and everything is going to be great. The difficulty in that usually is there is an assimilation model to prescribe that curling is this thing that you should come and participate in that you should belong to. And so I think that there is a sort of a misnomer and it's like, what does curling have to do? It's like, well, people in curling are part of a broader community. And part of the issue is that there's a lack of connection between these folks in, we'll call it inside the curling spaces to outside to different communities that they perhaps want to enter into the sport. But the fundamental issue is you can't go to, uh, you know, a community and say, you have to be part of this because we know it's great. Because the people in that space don't care. They're going to say, so what is this to me? And I get that a lot in my, you know, work. And it doesn't matter what sport it is, whether it's soccer, whether it's hockey, whether it's curling. The idea that sport in and of itself is so beneficial is now the challenge that we have to actually overcome in certain spaces, particularly around people that have been harmed 
that you know there isn't equitable spaces, that there isn't um, allowances and sensitivities. So you really have to think of it as going hat in hand to the rest of the community and say, hey, what do you need? You know, we're here to support you. You're part of, you know, we're part of you and you're also part of us. And then there can be the reciprocal invitation to come and saying, how do we make this a better experience to you? How do we actually, you know, work together to make sure that everybody's needs? Um, and then I would say internally, we, we can't, you know, dismiss that there is a huge culture around curling that people want to protect. There's traditions that are important. There's also traditions that need to be interrogated and perhaps dislodged because those could, you know, impede people actually feeling like they can become. And that is hard. But I will say that I think internally, there's not going to be a magic bullet that you say, well, if we have three black people, two disabled people, uh, some women on our board and in our spaces, then everything's going to be inclusive. I think the underlying value structure and politic has to be around how do we accommodate for people that aren't here? And that becomes a fundamental way to understand that that, you know, I'll, I'll throw some academia at you. So, you know, deference epistemology is all about taking this space that marginalized groups have inherent knowledge about what they need, what their experiences are, and that is only unique to them. So I can't, from my position, assume to know what that knowledge is and what they need in terms of the experience. So everyone says, well, we've done marketing, we've, you know, done outreach, but have you actually been in those spaces to learn like tacitly what it's like to be part of that community and be involved in them without an ask, without a come and be a curler, do that first so that then you establish these different bridges. And I know everybody on this call does a lot of this kind of work, you know, just inherently. But I think when we start to expand out into the rest of the curling community, that's where we need to sort of educate it's not just about knowing DEI about what diversity is you know what a microaggression is it's sort of how do you position yourself in the community to connect with other people to go into places where you don't feel comfortable and so that you can create a different kind of mechanism to bring them into somewhere that they may not feel so comfortable and, and it's you know crucial for for curling clubs and the curling community to, to ask various populations that aren't in your space, what prevents them from being there or what would welcome them into that space, as you kind of pointed to it, it, right? There's, you know, that element of consultation of, okay, we don't have certain groups of people in our curling club. Why is that? Well, let's go ask them, <laughs> right? Hey, what, tur what turns you off from curling? What may not be, you know, welcoming to you in the curling space and how can we change that? And how can we work to that? Um, and actually asking those tough questions, which can be scary to some people or can be, um, you know, nerve wracking for some people to ask, because, you know, if you understand your your privilege and your biases, you know, I of which have much privilege, much biases in this and unconscious biases, then um, sometimes it can be a little bit uh, scary to ask those questions. But you need to ask them in order to actually understand and appreciate what may be preventing others from coming into the sport or coming into your facility. Um, and so, so that's some crucial work that, that everybody can do. Um, and so moving into to what people are doing, what curling is doing, um, I wanted to get into some, some successes that you've seen in perhaps your work, but also in the sport 
of curling generally that you can point to of these folks are doing it right or on the right track of, of what we can learn from in, in working on diversity, equity, inclusion and in curling and making their spaces more welcoming and inclusive. Um, so Rich, I'll, I'll stick with you on this one to start us off on, on this subject to, to prevent you from having that <laughs> burdensome <laughs> honor of going last. Um, what successes have you seen that we can learn from? Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of success. I mean, some people who are on the call today, um, you know, I looked at what Andrew's doing out in Atlanta, Canada. There are some amazing things that just connecting these communities and, and like fundamentally, one of the things that curling has going for it, as opposed to other sports, is it is super fun. You can play it for a lifetime. But and so it's not the mechanism of curling. You get people into a curling club that look like me, that look different than perhaps the traditional curler. They're going to have fun. It's it's like that isn't the issue. So, uh, you know, I think the success um, there, there's probably more places that are doing very interesting things based on connections to different communities across Canada and, and also around the world. Um, you know, I can take a look, you know, even to Sweden, because I happen to know someone who works there. They're doing some amazing work, you know, around DEI in their clubs, which is like, oh, why would I expect something to happen in Sweden? But I mean, I think the success comes from champions, people internally and externally to the system, really taking something on. So even for yourself to do a podcast like this, that is exploring complicated things that there's a lot of people who are in, let's say, dominant society don't want to even enter into the conversation because it's scary and there's risk involved. So, you know, I think that we have to take a lot of these small wins, even some of the bigger ones, um, you know, thinking about, you know, uh, curling Canada's position on, you know, on trans rights and something like that, like those are very significant pillars that can that have to be actually touted in particular ways, or what somebody in the grassroots like Andrew is doing that has to be elevated to know that there is stuff happening, that you're not alone. And I think part of the communication, you know, even on my side is like, it's always, oh gosh, curling needs to do more. Well, everybody needs to do more, but what is also happening is also significant, you know, and I will go from my own standpoint back to last year and the symposium that went forward was, it was unique, one of a kind, you know, sort of spearheaded by Kathy and Heather Mayer and others, like Andrew was part of that, I was part of the design. And, and what it actually did was first and foremost, center all the people that don't normally have a voice in that space. And everybody was very appreciative. And it's like, that's a big win, regardless of anything else happens to have that significance, you know, happen in curling, one of the quintessentially Canadian sports that offers a very predominantly white, you know, facing membership, like that's huge. So, you know, I, 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 it's less about sort of saying that, oh gosh, you know, this whole sport is changing, but really sort of lauding some of the, the significant things that are going on. I think that that's, uh, you know, it's commendable, like I said, to people on the call and others that are doing really good work, you know, across the country. Yeah, and I've had a few people on some of our episodes love the symposium in particular um, for, for exactly the reasons you've outlined, Greg Smith being one of them. Um, and I will say here to, to Catherine in particular, from the Curling Canada perspective, as a member of the LGBTQ community myself, 
currently Canada's position on trans right and non-binary rights in particular is A, unique, uh, B, is bearing that torch, and C, is very rare, and actually taking an empathetic approach to welcoming particularly trans and non-binary youth into the sport of curling um, in a manner that is respectful to their own journey of uh, their own identity and who they are. Um, and that's something certainly to be lauded, but also I'll take the chance to say thank you for that and to everyone who is behind that. I said thank you to Helen, but <laughs> say, uh, say that to you as well. Um, and then transition to, to you, Catherine, of what successes you have seen in the sport that, that you'd like us to, to learn from. Yeah. So, you know, with the, with the caveat that lots more to go and many more successes that I'm expecting, uh, I do think that, that Rich is right is perhaps we've been, um, you know, trying to get it right and maybe not trying, maybe not spending the time to inspire others by saying, here's some things that are going quite right. Um, and you know, and in the space, we're always, I think, reluctant to, to to make it into a teaching moment rather than you know a pat on the back moment because that's that's not what we're here for. Uh, I think there's a couple of things that I'd like to, I'd like to say. You know, I, I would say for, first of all, from from most pe people, you know, from a, an inclusion perspective, I think we've all articulated that that means different things to many different people. So I will say um, where. We've seen some really interesting and, and I think good perspective is where we've really respected that, where we've said, you know, we're here to learn, we're here to support, we're here to, you know, provide you with the tools that you need within your community to be able to, to do some of those things. So, you know, I commend Andrew for lots of the work that we've done. We've done um, um, some really interesting work with a group called Dialot, Developing Young Leaders of Tomorrow Today. Um, and I thought what was really interesting, and I, I think when, when I had a little bit of one of my aha moments about how this work, when, when it's really successful and done really, really well, is that curling is responding to a need. Curling isn't the need. Um, and I'll give you the example in this dialogue group, um, Candace Kachapa, who um, I've worked with over the last couple of years on very different things from curling, had identified a need within her group of, it was young black girls, uh, I think between the ages of eight and about 16 that um, show tremendous leadership um, qualities, but don't have the experiences that they need. And Candace was talking about um, going into unfamiliar spaces and being confident in those spaces. That's something she's really trying to, and I said, well, I've got, <laughs> I've got something that is an unfamiliar space that I think, as Rich said, once you're in that space, um, is really fun for the girls, but it is it is confronting and learning how to walk into a new place. So at that point, you know, we were saying to her, curling is helping your need. We we are not, you know, you're you're not here. We're not here to try and draw you into our curling. Curling can can respond to an issue that you have, and I think that's where we've been really successful with a number of the projects we're doing. So I'll just call that one out. I think the second one was. Um, you know, I've been, you know, sometimes when you're sitting in an organization that, you know, theoretically is supposed to be, you know, sort of looking at all things all the time, I was becoming just increasingly confounded by how complicated this system was. And I had done a study at one point on the governance system that in sort of traditional sport, which is national sport organizations, provincial and territory bodies, clubs, curlers, and it's very linear. And the more I talked to some of my colleagues, but in particular, Rich, we started to realize there's just so many other places in how people access sport. And there's so many places where people get turned away from sport that are kind of outside of maybe what we've ever 
understood and we were looking for and you know one of you know rich went off to look for a study of the canadian sports system and none could be found and so um what curling canada did with with rich in partnership with rich and ocad U, um is to um is to develop a, a, like a real bird's eye view of what the canadian sports system looks like and it's it's incredible just how complex it is but you know you can use this i would call it it's an agnostic look at it um, but you can look at it through a safety lens. You can look at it through an inclusion lens. You can look at it through a, a high performance lens or a, an athlete pathway lens. But what we've done for the first time, I think, in Canadian history, and I think is successful in and of itself, is having a map of how do human beings that live in the borders of Canada access sport. And it's um, I, it, daunting. It doesn't even begin to describe what you see. But actually, it was a great deal of comfort to see how complex it is because you can start to see the places that you need to start attacking and it gets that linear thinking off the table and you start to say if i want to make real change i know you know we, sometimes we've got to be flankers and guerrillas like not you know not just an offense defense kind of army i hate to use those things but but you know if you're attacking a problem i think you need to sometimes think about those things so i i would say that in and of itself is a success and i'll stop there yes yeah, so some great progress some great work and, and some great successes to point to but to be sure um andrew would you like to build from there of successes we can point to and learn from sure so um not to um reiterate um what what rich and catherine said but one of the um biggest successes that i've seen is just simply understanding that failure isn't an endpoint and the importance of feedback into not only inclusion programs, but in the way curling clubs operate in general. So I've worked in the sport of curling in many different capacities for a while now. Obviously, I will work more in sport in general. But I can remember a time not too long ago, I'm thinking like 2015, 2016, where you'd run a program, which is say for youth in general. And you invite the youth from the elementary school across the street into the curling club. You run a program on Saturday morning when the junior program runs, only five of those kids show up. And then the curling club manager, the junior program director would say, well, we tried it, it didn't work. Move, we're moving on. But more and more, and I really noticed this at um, the symposium that Rich and Catherine were referring to in Niagara Falls, but there were so many curling clubs and facilities that have tried things and gained feedback, whether it's feedback directly from the participants, whether it's feedback from the instructors, and built that into their program or to their initiative and tried again. Again, like failure is not an endpoint. And very often, especially when we're going into this world where, as um, Roselle said, we don't even have concrete definitions on what we all think diversity, equity, and inclusion is. So when we're going to these spaces, we're going to a bit of the unknown. But once we try something, what have we learned from that? And what can we do to build on that and move forward? Because like I mentioned earlier, this is a movement and not a moment. And while progress is slow, I remember a time, not all that long ago, I think in 2017, 2018, 
where the idea of it talking about what can we do to have somebody who looks like me feel more welcome, feel that sense of belonging to a curling club is not something that any of our member associations or even um, um, curling facilities at the community level would have. So that in and of itself is progress and shows to me personally, when my son and I walk into a curling facility that we have begun to have these conversations and we are learning from them. It's just like um, everybody said on the call, we still have a long way to go. Yeah, we, we still have a long way to go, but we've made some good progress, but it's a never ending progress, right? There is no end point, right? And as you said, failure is not an end point, but also there is no like Eureka, we've, We've conquered diversity, equity, and inclusion, everybody. Our sport is perfect. Congratulations. We can all go home now. Well, that's never going to happen, right? We'll always be continuing to make progress and it isn't a linear process. And, and to learn from those failures, but also to take a moment to step back and accept responsibility for either our own personal missteps or failures or what have you, or biases or whatever the case may be, or privilege um, and acknowledging that and then carrying forward what progress we can make and learning from it. Um, Roselle, what, what successes do you think we can point to uh, to learn from? My goodness, uh, no, no kidding about the bringing up the caboose on answering these questions. It's a, uh, a hard a hard position, but you know, I'll, I think my, my response will be in two parts, one quite personal and one quite perhaps academic in, in some of my observations. And I'll start with the personal one. Um, so, you know, because we're in the medium of podcasts, you don't have visual access to me, but, you know, I'm a short-haired, heavily bespectacled, brown-skinned woman of, of Indian origin and not somebody who would physically be considered part of the curling community more, more traditionally. And um, I remember, you know, a few years ago when I kind of uh, wanted the opportunity to serve, uh, wanted to serve in governance, wanted to serve uh, in governance at the national level, and the opportunity to apply to the Board of Governors for Curling Canada, um, you know, presented itself. And I really considered what it would mean to be um, me in, in my positionality and being who I am in the body that I live in, to be in service to an organization that, A, as an immigrant, I had no concept of, no, no sort of access point to. I've curled before, you know, as part of uh, a community league when I was living in Calgary. And but but that was kind of that was kind of very light touch involvement. I didn't feel like I was part of the curling community in, in any way other than, you know, I, I felt a part of my club, I felt a part of my team, that kind of stuff. But what was really curious to me was when I first um, you know, joined uh, as part of the Board of Governors, I was offered the opportunity to sit on the international committee and as part of a small delegation of folks represent curling Canada at the World Curling Federation and, and have conversations with our global partners doing the same thing. And I know Richard talked about, um, you know, the great work that's coming out of Sweden. We see European, uh, African, Asian countries coming together, having these conversations in really meaningful ways. But what makes it really personal is that oftentimes when I travel outside of Canada and I identify myself as Canadian, there's a little bit of a, of a you know, head tilt of, uh, Canadian, but like what's before that? Because there's always a query behind the color of skin or, or you know, um, questions about uh, heritage, which I don't often mind. It, it's great. 
But my first time being at uh, the WCF meetings and meeting, you know, colleagues and counterparts from across the globe, you know, I was with my with my Curling Canada colleagues, and you know, we really enjoy spending time together. We're we're there as a as an entirety of a delegation. But over the few days that we were there, I started having these conversations with um, member associations to the WCF, members of those associations from smaller curling nations who didn't have quite the presence of curling in their country, but were really passionate about bringing curling to the forefront uh, for themselves as well. And over the time that we were there, I started having these conversations with these smaller member associations that would inevitably wind up at we really like talking to you because you're Canadian, you get the big curling system, but you also look like us. And we wanna to talk to people who might understand where we're coming from. And I thought that that was such a powerful contribution to my own understanding of belonging to the curling world because representation matters. Us having voice, face, presence, acceptance, belonging at any given table creates that ripple effect of being torchbearers simply by virtue of being there. It creates connections simply by virtue of understanding that there might be an empathetic response or a way of understanding what a community is experiencing or, or working through without that judgment or without the perception of judgment. Because I don't believe that any of my Curling Canada colleagues would have met those other uh, member associations, anything other than generosity and incredible inclusion but the perception of meeting and talking to somebody that looks like me, that might understand me on a deeper level, that's a really powerful um, sort of symbol that we create when we work more globally. The other uh, win that I can really point to, and it'll take me in a little bit of an academic direction, is you know, as humans, we have not evolved past the ability of our amygdala to recognize fear that is rooted in keeping ourselves safe versus fear that is desirous of being comfortable. So we don't know the difference between safety and comfort a lot of the time. And so conversations like inclusion, conversations like reconciliation, conversations like anti-racism or trans rights or any of these conversations that feel quite emotionally weighty often create the experience of fear, but we don't know whether it's fear of being unsafe or fear of being uncomfortable. And we often will tend towards safety because humans like to keep ourselves safe. What I've seen in my time of working with Curling Canada, working with our global partners, working within our federated model of our member associations here within the provinces and territories as well, is I've seen that needle move over the last few years from this is making me feel scared so I'm just not going to talk about it or I'm just going to shut down the conversation to where we're sitting in you know, the middle of 2023 and I'm watching partners, friends, colleagues, allies um, across the system being willing to make themselves uncomfortable in service of um, the curling system, creating that space for belonging, creating that space for uncomfortable conversations that inevitably result in greater wins and more inclusion across the system. And so those are two ways in which I've really witnessed um, the ability of the system to do some wonderful inclusive things and then also keep itself as you say on that journey because it isn't linear it isn't a road a one road for all directions um, it is iterative and it requires us to be uncomfortable but knowing that we have the safety and knowing that we have the ability um, to make those changes and and uh, galvanize towards that next evolution
Thank you. And, and, and thank you to all of you for, for those successes. I think it's always great. Sometimes we get caught up in the, in the difficulty and the challenges that face ourselves in curling or, or generally in society with a lot of a lot of issues coming to the forefront and a very difficult period at the moment, of course. So it's nice to, to hear some of the positives that are going, but some of the things we can look to and learn from and, and benefit from other successes and, and some of the successes of everyone here as well. Um, so, so thank you all for, for speaking to that. And then uh, to, to, to wrap up, I wanna try and highlight some, some lessons that you all have for our listeners and our viewers of the podcast and, and some parting words, shall we say, of, uh, you know, if you had one or two things that you would want someone to take away from this or from your expertise or experience, what, what would they be? What lessons would you have to share? Um, Richard, I'm going to start with you. All right. Going first isn't any better, apparently. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think this is, is such a daunting task for anyone it doesn't matter um, what your position is and, and what, you know, sort of perspective you're coming from. I mean, this is my life's work. Um, you know, I've gone through the academic side. I've gone the practice side. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still, you know, coming into more understandings and deeper reflections on all these kinds of issues. So I think, you know, as, you know, Rizal was talking about this idea of fear, I think, um, it's not a perfect state of being. And I think that when we are trying to solve issues of inclusion, it's so easy to obviously focus on things that are, are, are you know, harmful and people's trauma and things that are, are, are characterized as sort of negative. Um, but that shouldn't dissuade us from actually pushing forward and trying different things and not getting it right. And I think in that is ring being very, you know, authentic in who you are approaching it, but also very apologetic, right? If you make a misstep of just, you know, owning that misstep, learning from it, but really saying, this is how we're actually going to move it forward based on my learnings and not shut down and saying, oh, that's it. As Andrew was saying, we've tried it once. We're not going to do it again. So it, it is something that you need a certain level of resilience to actually follow through and making sure that this happens and it can't be about yourself. So decentering yourself and, and really just being compassionate that you're not going to get it 100% right. I think that those are the things that I would try to pass on to people that are listening in on this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, Roselle, what, uh, what lessons would you have for folks? Thanks, Will, and I, I think I'll build on what uh, on what Richard has offered here. Um, I, my one of my favorite thinkers, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, has this often quoted idea that in order to be an expert at something, you have to have done it for ten thousand hours. And you know, to riff on that a little bit, I actually think that we have to iterate ten thousand times before we can come to a place where we're like, yeah, you know what? We've tried a bunch of things, and I think we've found ways in which we can address some of this. I think iteration creates the opportunity for feedback, for learning, for a real-time uh, you know, update of what we're doing, if things are working, if they're not. But that willingness to iterate, to get that feedback, to say, okay, maybe I wasn't quite right the first time around. Maybe I wasn't quite right the 85th time around either, but being willing to keep coming back to that, that table and iterate to the point where we were starting to feel okay, you know what, we're seeing some traction, we're seeing some successes, it's teaching us some lessons for what we could do next. Um, I think that that is really 
not only the ticket to finding a system and building a system that we can all be proud of, that we can all see ourselves reflected in, but it also gives us the practice of trying something without the expectation of expertise in its first few go arounds. I think, you know, sport is a perfect analogy of that. We do not become high performance athletes on our first day on the ice. And so if we think of the journey from first day on the ice to, you know, gold podium, uh, high performance, that is an extremely iterative, highly coachable, highly feedback oriented, outcome based process. And I believe that our journey towards being an inclusive system is quite similar in that we do have to start feeling wobbly. We have to trust ourselves and trust each other on the process. And I think together, as we iterate and create loops of trust and feedback, um, we find ourselves on that journey where we're allowed to make mistakes, we're allowed to learn from them, we're allowed to grow, and we're allowed to feel proud of what we do accomplish together. Mm. Well put. Thank you. Andrew, what lessons would you have for everyone listening? Um, I, I have two, um, and Rich um, connected on the um, first one, and it's really about decentering yourself. Um, across sport and across um, society in general, those who I find are really good at this DEI work, it's not about them, and it never has been about them. Um, and if it, this is really about you and making yourself feel good then that's that's going to be a problem you're not it's going to take a long time to reach success if you will and i think the second um lesson or part and thought that i would give is to recognize that you're not alone and or need to start from square zero in this space um rich is a hundred percent correct in the sense that Yes, there are some unique pieces that make curling great, but curling is not unique in this space. It's very similar to a bunch of different sports, some of whom, especially at the community level, have created successes. I, I think of the Black Youth Ice Hockey Program here in, in Nova Scotia, the Hockey Nova Scotia runs. There are some successes that they took that actually create the basis of the work that we do with the Black Rock Initiative. So we took those successes and ran with them and built on them. If you're reaching out to a specific community from an underrepresented group, there are already organizations out there that work to serve those groups. Here in Nova Scotia, I think of Immigrant Services Association of Nova Scotia, a resettlement um, organization that helps newcomers settle into different areas of Nova Scotia. So again, recognizing that you're not alone, you need to start from square zero, because when we do that, that's when our own biases and privileges cloud our way of thinking and we make assumptions. And of course, we all know the saying with assumptions. So those would be two pieces in particular that, that I would point to. Fantastic, thank you. And, and last but certainly not least, Catherine, you're in a, a moment where you're moving on to a, a significant yeah. role now at Hockey Canada, looking back on your time working on this with, with Curling Canada and your experience, what lessons would you have to, to share with folks? You know, I, I think I'm going to summarize what I heard, but I, I hand over heart. This is exactly what I wrote down when I when you when you post that question to me is state your aspirations and make them big. Listen, try, listen, try, listen, pick yourself up off the ground, listen, try, celebrate, and repeat. You know that that that's really the only way we're gonna we're we're gonna get here. 
Um, and, you know, <laughs> you're just all so much more eloquent than I am. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to be on this podcast and just to listen to my friends and colleagues, um, you know, uh, speak about all these things. And I've been taking I've been taking numerous notes about things that I have to do going forward as well. So thank you very much, Will. No problem. And thank you all for your time with me. Roselle had to run for another commitment, but I appreciate it very much and for trusting me with uh, this conversation and for uh, taking the time to impart some knowledge and some lessons and some learnings on uh, everyone in the curling community, but anyone else who may find this podcast. And so if you have enjoyed the conversation, please do like it, share it with a friend, send it to someone you think might need to hear it. Um, I've been Will Robertson. This has been Andrew Paris, Richard Norman, Catherine Henderson, and Rosal Gonzalez. Um, please do come back for our next episode. In the meantime, uh, do take care. Thank you for watching this episode of the Curling for Change podcast, brought to you by the World Curling Federation and presented by Curling Canada. My name is Will Robertson, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you have, please do consider giving it a like, a share, or to subscribe on YouTube for future episodes. As always, you can find it in video every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern on Curling Canada Plus and on audio format wherever you find your podcasts and will always come out for free on YouTube a week later. Take care, and I hope to see you in the next episode.